Tonight I would like to speak about the why and the how of practice. The Buddha often spoke of motivation, the factor of motivation, as being the key element in determining the fruits or the results of our actions. And this is the basis for the understanding of the entire law of karma. That is that the motivation behind our actions, the quality of motivation, determines or conditions the particular kind of result. We often apply this understanding to our actions in the world. I think most of us, at least to some extent, try to keep this in mind. We know, for example, that actions based on greed bring a very different result than actions based on generosity, even if the act happens to look the same. But because our motivation is different, the result in the world will be different in our own minds. The same way actions based on envy, motivated by envy or jealousy, very different than actions motivated by love or compassion or kindness. Although most of us, I think, try to keep this understanding of the importance of motivation alive to some extent in our daily lives, I think that often we don't apply that same understanding to why we undertake practice. And to realize that the motivation for our practice determines the result as much as motivation for any action in the world. So it raises the question, why are we practicing? What is the motivation for us? Why are we here? Probably after two days, after the romance has faded, <laughs> you may be asking yourself that question for another reason. What is the motivation? Why do we practice? Each one of you may have quite different initial motivations. Now, some people come to meditation because they really see it as a way of cooling out, of de-stressing. You know, our, our lives and our culture are so busy and so fast that often there's this huge amount of tension and stress that we carry around and practice is a way of stress reduction. And that's that is a very pragmatic reason for, for sitting, for meditating. Sometimes people are motivated to practice out of a desire to understand the suffering that's in their lives, you know, or difficulties that we face in our lives. We might find ourselves entangled over and over again in particular patterns of suffering, and we want to understand what is going on. How do I keep getting caught in this? How do I keep creating this suffering 
for myself or for others. So that can be a motivation, a powerful motive for practice. Some of you might have the motivation really aiming for the highest goal of liberation, of awakening. The reason you practice is for enlightenment, you know, for complete freedom. This radical transformation of understanding who we are and who we aren't. What has been of tremendous importance for me in my life and in my practice is understanding that each of these individual motivations which we might have can be contained in a larger context of understanding. And that is the context of understanding that we don't practice for ourselves alone. Whatever our individual motivation may be, that our practice is never just for ourselves, but it is for the happiness and the benefit of all beings. This can be the larger container, the larger context. We can look at this larger context in two ways. One way is to realize that as we practice, as we purify our minds, other, other beings, other people will certainly benefit from that. And so the happiness and benefit to others comes as the result of our practice. That's one way of understanding it. An additional way of understanding emphasizes that benefiting others is the motivation for practice. Not only that it's the end result, but it actually comes prior. It is the beginning point. It's the ground out of which we practice. Conscious motivation. Yes, I practice for the benefit of all beings. What does this mean, realistically? I mean, it certainly, or can be, an inspiring thought. But what does it mean, actually? How, and in what possible way, does our sitting here, watching our breath and our knee pain, benefit all beings? You know, where is the connection? Some time ago, I had, uh, I had a little epiphany <laughs> just around this issue. And it was really quite a turning point for me. I was sitting on a retreat with this very wonderful teacher. And he was really living and embodying qualities of compassion and wisdom and kindness and love and this 
to paraphrase a book title, or to this incredible lightness of being. It's just a tremendous uh, spirit, tremendous spirit of joy and of depth, of real wisdom and understanding. And somehow being in his presence, it's as if his very presence was the transmission of these qualities. You know, one could feel it, see it, imbibe it, simply from the way that he was. And probably each one of us at different times in our lives have been with people like this. You know, we've met people that have just had this kind of impact for us. So one time in the retreat, I came into the hall and he was sitting there and everybody else was sitting. I just sat down and I was sitting there with my eyes open and I took everything in. It's like I was just aware of the whole, of the whole scene. And it felt to me in that moment, and this was quite a way into the retreat, so the mind you know, had settled down, it was quiet. It felt to me like all of us together on this retreat were like beings on a boat in the middle of an ocean. You know, just sharing, sharing this voyage together. And in that moment, I felt such gratitude for the fact that this teacher, that he was on the boat as well. I thought, what a blessing you know, to, be, to be on this boat in the middle of the ocean, and he's there too. Because of, of the beneficent power of his, of his presence. It was at that point that my mind made a certain leap, which in retrospect, as these leaps often are, in retrospect is completely obvious. But in the moment, it was transforming. You know, it's all of a sudden, just getting something. And it really expanded this leap that my mind made expanded my understanding of this whole issue of motivation. What happened was, is I was just had this image of all, us on, all of us on the boat and my feeling such gratitude for him being there as well. I realized that it's not only a few special people who influence their environment. that myself and everybody else was inevitably influencing the whole environment, everyone on the boat. We were all interconnected in this way, and it couldn't be otherwise. We were all on this boat, crossing the ocean of samsara, with our own mind states, our own feelings, our own understandings, our own wisdom, our own suffering, our own neurosis, right? everything, everything that we have, and that each one of us, in the very nature of things, influences, has an influence on everyone else.
in seeing that, I mean, it, as I say, it's obvious from this perspective, it seems so obvious, but it had been something intellectual for me. And in that moment, it dropped to a deeper place where I really felt how our practice, the practice that we're doing, this practice of transformation of our consciousness, this practice of purifying ourselves, of course is for the benefit of all beings. Because as we purify ourselves of greed and of hatred and of delusion, and we manifest and we embody the forces of greater love and greater compassion and greater wisdom and greater lightness, that influence is felt. I'm emphasizing this so much, uh, obviously, because it had a deep impact on me. But I think there's a powerful shift in our practice when we understand the power of motivation. When we see that what we do automatically affects, ripples out, not only the people close to us, but in ways we can't even imagine. Then to consciously have that motivation, to bring that motivation you know, from our hearts, yes, I am practicing. I am practicing for the benefit and for the happiness of all beings. This is why I'm doing it. So instead of being on these individual tracks next to one another, each one of us just kind of going along next to one another but separate, what I felt was that this opening to this deeper or more expansive motivation made the whole practice wider. I became less engaged in kind of reaching forward for myself, and I could feel the energetic settling back. Yes, we're all doing it for one another. Not just as an idea, not just as, not just as a piece of poetry, but actually that's how it's happening. If you feel connected to this at all, if this makes sense to you, some ways that can be used to strengthen this motivation, because it certainly is not going to be there all the time. It's not that we're going to walk around in this blissful state of altruistic, joyous good wishes for all other beings. I mean, if we manage to tap into it a few times a day, <laughs> it will be good. But there are ways we can practice it, just like we practice mindfulness or practice concentration. We can practice this motivation, reminding ourselves. A couple of ways of doing it at the beginning of a sitting. One might make the resolution or um, resolution or determination. May I quickly be liberated 
for the benefit and welfare of all. This is just an example. Everybody will find their own way of expression. But it's really enunciating our highest aspiration motivated by the thought, may this be for the happiness of all beings. What I think you'll find is that the practice opens. It becomes expansive. It becomes inclusive. At the end of the sitting, a very powerful thing to do is to dedicate the merit of the sitting. May the merit of this sitting, may the merit of my practice be dedicated to the awakening of all beings. So at each sitting, in the beginning and the end, we're developing this connection, we're strengthening this motivation. And what happens is that it begins to suffuse our practice with greater feelings of love and compassion. Because that's the feeling out of which this motivation comes. So the question now is how do we affect this transformation in ourselves? How do we bring about this purification of the mind, this purification of the heart, so that it can be of benefit to all? Even in the first couple of days of a retreat, people have a tremendously important insight. And that is, we see very directly and intimately how often our minds get lost, how often we're distracted, how often we don't know what is going on. Now we follow a breath or two, maybe three, and then we're seduced by thoughts and memories and daydreams and reveries, you know, plans and fantasies, and just over and over again. And what has always amazed me about this process of seduction that takes place is that these thoughts and feelings and fantasies and plans or daydreams, they don't even have to be pleasant ones. <laughs> you know, we can get lost in totally unpleasant ones reliving old hurts or old angers. Or <laughs> but this is the habit of our mind. Now, the mind is so slippery. It's just incredibly slippery. We're just with the breath, a very simple object, and it literally slips off the breath into a whole train of association. And before we know it, we have created a whole drama, you know, often with some intense emotion connected with it, which is creating, we're creating this soap opera, lost in it, you know, and, and we can feel the contraction of self into it through the identification with it. We just contract right into that identification, creating the sense of self.
This process has been the lifelong history of our minds. And not only this life, but perhaps countless lifetimes. You know, we can see even in a day or two of practice, it's so startling. <laughs> see the rapidity and the endlessness of this happening over and over and over again. Don't undervalue the power of seeing this clearly. The insight that this is happening is itself a tremendously transformative insight. Most people in this world have no idea that their minds wander. <laughs> they don't, I mean, just imagine going up to somebody you know, you know, who, who doesn't practice. Does your mind wander? Oh, no. Are you unaware? Not me. <laughs> people are living in this realm of unawareness and have no idea. And in one sense, it's quite funny because it's so obvious as soon as we take a couple of minutes, you know, and really take a look at what's going on, but it's really a source of tremendous suffering. Now, when we see this process in our own minds so clearly, we really can understand the critical, essential importance of awakening, of staying aware, so that we don't get lost over and over again in unawareness. Because if we don't, and we can see it in ourselves, and we can see it in the world, we create all of these mind games, mind dramas, and they're lived out on the stage of the world, the stage of our relationships, with disastrous consequences. People don't know what they're doing. You know, and pick up any newspaper, and it's a catalog of it. I'm sure you're very familiar, just some strikingly obvious examples of the complete insanity that is going on in what was formerly Yugoslavia. And obviously it's not just there, it's all over. It's like all of this tremendous suffering, it's coming from the mind, it's coming from people's minds. But it's coming from this tremendous ignorance. People don't know what they're doing. And <laughs> to a very great extent, we don't know what we're doing, as you can see when you sit down and practice. You know, all those times when we're lost, but we don't know. We've forgotten. We see it played out in the world. We see it played out in our own interpersonal relationships. We see it played out in the solitude of a retreat, sitting very quietly, with no external distraction. How many worlds do we create in our minds? 
So I think you can see the, both the obvious truth of what happens, of how an untrained mind over and over again slips into unawareness, where we don't know what's going on, and just how important it is first to notice that this is happening and then to train ourselves to awaken. So the first step is really practicing calming our minds, collecting our attention, so we're not distracted as often or for so long. I mean, it still will happen over and over again, but we get quicker. We, we begin to see it more quickly. We're not, we're not so caught in it. There are three tools of practice which tremendously help us to awaken. They help us to stay undistracted. They help stabilize our awareness. The first of the tools of practice which we've been working with and will continue to work with throughout the retreat is using the breath or the walking as a primary object of attention. We use the breath or the movement of the walking as an anchor so that we're not just scattered helplessly in in what's happening. We anchor our attention with something very tangible, very simple. And through anchoring our attention on the primary object, we see how naturally mindfulness can arise. It's not something we have to struggle for. Right now, just take a breath in and out. Do you have any problem feeling it, being aware of it? It's not, it's simple. That when we're there, when we're actually present, the breath comes in, it comes out, we feel it. The reason that people often find difficulty with staying with the breath is that we come into a sitting or a walking with a totally unrealistic expectation. If you come in and you think, okay, I'm going to sit down now and I'm going to be with my breath for this hour, that is hopeless. (laughs) It is totally hopeless. The mind does not have the capacity to do that. So what happens? After the first few times of the mind drifting off and wandering, we begin to get discouraged. We get discouraged, we try harder, we make more effort. We make more effort, we try harder, we get more tense. It's even more diff- we just get into this spiral of frustration. We set ourselves up for that suffering because of a misplaced expectation. An hour is much too long. A half hour is much too long. 30 seconds is much too long. It is. You can be aware of one in-breath. As we just did, I mean, we just, you just took an in-breath, and for those advanced yogis, maybe you can do an in and an out. That is the max. That's all we have to do, and that's, 
that's what we have to set ourselves to do. Just relax back into the body. Our job is to be aware of just this in-breath. We see how that breath appears. And then the out-breath appears, or the rising, falling. And then the next. And then the next. And we can do this whole, this whole practice in a mental environment of relaxation because we're not struggling with something beyond our capacity. So this is one aspect of working with the primary object. Keep it very simple, very short. (laughs) It's ridiculously simple. Just an in-breath. There's no problem with that. An out-breath. Okay. As you may have noticed, in the morning instructions, I've been using the word appearance a lot, rather than the word object. And I feel that there's some important shift of understanding just in this change of language. When we think of the breath as an object, it already, the very word object solidifies things too much. It says if something is there which we can grab onto and hold. So it sets us up to do exactly the wrong thing. When we think of the breath or a movement or a sound as something simply appearing, that implies, in the very word, it implies the basic insubstantiality of phenomena. It's like a rainbow appears in the sky. There's no such thing as a rainbow. (laughs) A rainbow is an appearance because of certain conditions, that's all. There's no no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And yet it's really interesting. We, We can, as the rainbow appears in the sky, we see it, we can appreciate it, we can even gaze at it. We can really focus our attention on it, but there's no, there's no, energy to grasp it, because we know that it's not really there, it's just an appearance. Can we be with the breath or with the movement in the same way? The the experience of the breath, it's as insubstantial as a rainbow, or the experience of movement. You know, when I first sat with Upandita, he really, he, he really <laughs> inspires, demands, whatever, a very close and careful attention. And it was so interesting to me, to, especially in the walking, just to try and feel, okay, what is that movement? You know, when I, when I would move my leg through the air, I knew that I was feeling something, but it was so insubstantial. It's like, it's like a rainbow. It's, 
and it required the tremendous presence and softness and and a non-grasping it. Just, okay, what is that? What is that feeling? So that's why I've been suggesting this word of really seeing the breath or the, the movement, the primary object. Be with it as an appearance. And then the mind can be with it very softly without grasping. At the same time, and this is something Steve talked about this morning, there is a certain effort involved in staying with it. There's a certain there's a certain holding of it, not a grasping. And an image which comes to mind, and it's strange that it should come to my mind since I have very little experience of this, but it seemed an appropriate image, is that of holding a baby. You know, when you hold a baby, <laughs> the few times I have, <laughs> and in observing many others, I mean, it's obvious that you really need to hold it. <laughs> you need to pay attention. You need to be careful. You can't be careless. And just, <laughs> Oops, there goes the baby. <laughs> and at the same time, you're not clutching it. You're not <laughs> so there's a certain... <laughs> there's a cradling of it. I like the image because it suggests that, that there actually is a quality of care, you know, of holding, of... See, effort is not exactly the right word, but it is a kind of effort. And yet it's done in a very soft and flexible and open way. That's how we can be with the breath of the movement. Cradle the breath, or cradle the movement. So we're using it as the primary object. We just haven't dropped everything. We actually are attending to it, being with it, just as an appearance, arising and passing. So it's very soft, very open, very spacious, and yet there is the energy of being present. This is the art of our practice. This is what we have to learn. Sometimes we'll be too loose, the baby drops. Sometimes we're too tight and we squeeze it to death. Then we can see that happening in, in the way we relate to our own experience. See if you can just find that place of balance, of poise. Okay, so working with the primary object in all of these ways. This is the first tool of practice. It's tremendously helpful. It really, it's an essential part of the training. It actually does stabilize our awareness. A second tool of practice is something which also requires a delicacy of understanding. And that is the tool of slowing down a little bit. <coughs> if we slow down, we begin to settle into greater and greater subtleties of experience. We're not so busy rushing through things in order to do something else. We're really there. We're 
feeling what we're doing. We're in our bodies. We're not out ahead of ourselves. The key to this slowing down again has to do with motivation. If we slow down out of a place of interest in what's happening, rather than a place of should, you know, oh, good yogis are supposed to move slowly, that doesn't work. It doesn't. I mean, we just get more tight and more tense and more contracted. At times, and this, it's not like you have to become a zombie for three months, at times, when you feel the interest, when you feel the willingness, when you really want to explore the subtleties of what, are going, what is going on, begin to slow down a little bit. Pay careful attention even to the small things. You, know, you open a door, you're eating, you're brushing your teeth, you're putting your shoes on, you're standing up, you're sitting down. All the, all the activities through the day can you really be with it? Can you take the time to be with it? This is something that Georgia O'Keeffe wrote. Um, it's really just about this. She said, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. Nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small, because to see takes time. And to have a friend takes time. She saw. She took the time and she saw. We can take the time. This is the great gift of the retreat. I mean, it's a tremendous gift, you know, that you give yourselves. You have nothing else to do. Just take the time. Take the time to see. Small things. What is a movement? You know, you're moving your foot through the air. What is that? What is that experience? Can you feel it? Can you be with it carefully? Again, you want to do this from a place of interest, not a place of inner compulsion. Because then you don't see anyway. And it's also to know, or to appreciate the context of where you are and what you're doing. You know, when you're on lunch line and there are 50 people behind you, you want to move a little quicker. You don't have to be rushing through the line, and you don't have to lose your sense of presence and awareness. But it's not the time you know, to be going microscopically slow. <laughs> or you're walking through a doorway and you know, there's this logjam of yogis. You can speed up a little bit. So you know, just some common sense about where and what and circumstance. But keep in mind the power of at times slowing down a lot so that you can see, so that you can really be with what's happening. 
Okay, so the first tool of practice of stabilizing awareness, so we're not caught so often or for so long in unawareness, the first tool is using the primary object, the breath or the, the walking. The second is slowing down. The third tool of practice, which serves in many different ways, is the tool of mental noting. The noting, when it's done skillfully, is or can be tremendously valuable. First, it supports the very simple recognition of what's present. We just, it recognizes the in-breath, out, or the rising, or hearing, or seeing, or thinking, or judging, whatever it is. Now, in this, in this play of experience, the note just helps us recognize, yes, this is what's here, this is what's happening. It's very simple. It clarifies, it's like it puts a frame around the picture so we see the picture more clearly. It's feedback to us, the note can be feedback as to whether we are really being attentive or not. Because there's a meditative disease which is epidemic, of epidemic proportions. It's called more or less mindfulness. I'm kind of mindful. (laughs) I kind of know what's going on, but not really, not fully, not completely. The noting can help be feedback for whether we're, we're clearly present or just sort of a half aware. It's feedback if we've intended to be noting and we forget. That's some feedback. It's, okay, we missed something. Our mind is drifting in some way or other. Or if the noting gets very mechanical, which it can. You know, you're saying in and the breath is coming out. Or, or you're saying, as you're sitting in the hall, lifting, moving, lifting, moving. I and mean, clearly then, the virus has struck. So it's just, just as a simple feedback mechanism, it can show us whether we're really connecting with what's present or not. There's another way that it helps. The tone of the note often reveals to us our attitude and reactions to experience which we might not otherwise have recognized. Pay attention to the quality, to the tone of the noting. Are you noting aggressively, angrily, judgmentally? That tone is going to be showing you actually how you're holding the experience. Or is the note soft? Is it open? Is it light? And what's quite amazing, and this is, this is one of the, the little miracles in practice, if you notice that the mind is reactive and that the tone, the note is reactive, often simply by changing the tone of the note, by softening it, the whole mind state changes. So just look at that. Experiment for yourself. 
The noting does one other thing. It leads us into a clear recognition of the thinking process and the process of consciousness itself. I've mentioned a couple of times in the morning instructions, as you note, in and out or sensations or hearing, see the note as another appearance in the mind. So you're not getting identified with the note. It's not that you are doing the noting. Rather, the note arises in the mind as another appearance, but functioning to connect with the object. And this does something very interesting. Because the note, you could think of it as a conscious thought. It's a thought process, but it's conscious. Because it's conscious, we can see and recognize it as a thought immediately, just as it's happening, rather than, as is usually the case, we're lost for a long time in thought before we recognize that we're thinking. But when we see the note as the appearance of a thought in the mind, every time we note, we're reinforcing our understanding of the nature of thought. We see over and over again just that insubstantial, empty nature of it, even as it's serving its function of connecting us to the object. So it's ongoing training in learning how to recognize and be aware of thought process. This is tremendously freeing because it's the thoughts, it's the unnoticed thoughts which seduce us over and over again. Noting also serves to foster the wisdom of equality. And one of the great discoveries and awakenings of practice is to see that from the perspective of knowing, from the perspective of the knowing mind, all appearances are equal. The breath, sounds, sensations, thoughts, judgments, opinions, views, emotions, everything. They're all equal appearances arising and passing in the mind. The noting reinforces that wisdom because it's simply acknowledging that this, 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 this. And so this tremendous freedom of impartiality begins to be strengthened in us. There are many ways to to play with the noting, and please experiment for yourself. You don't have to see it as some kind of rigid form. There are lots of ways of playing with it. Sometimes people put a note just at the very beginning of the breath, and then just feel the rest of it. Sometimes people cover the whole breath with a note. Sometimes people repeat the note. Sometimes people are noting for a while, and then let the noting go for a while and see what happens. Just use it, experiment, investigate for yourself 
the ways in which it supports your awakening. So these are the three basic tools of our practice. Using the primary object, slowing down, using the noting in whatever way to foster and support awareness and mindfulness. Through these tools, we begin to discover the very nature of our bodies, the very nature of our minds. Meditation is the expression of a tremendous willingness to open to what's there, to open to whatever is there. Let me see the whole thing. Let me see the whole show. Most of you are familiar with my favorite Vipassana mantra, but it served me so well in the practice. It's okay. That's the mantra. It's okay. It's whatever it is. Doesn't matter. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Because it just reminds, it reminds us, okay, this is okay. Let me feel this. Let me experience this. It's just another appearance. It might be pleasant, it might be unpleasant. It's okay. Now, this strengthens the quality of interest for us. When we create this spaciousness and acceptance, then we can take interest in what's happening. And what's happening is so miraculous. What is the breath? Now, this breath is sustaining our life. We stop breathing, that's it. you'd think it would be of at least some slight interest. <laughs> but it, it's an amazing thing that's happening. Each breath that we take is keeping us alive. What's going on? What is that? We can feel that. We can begin to experience. Okay, we... Not theoretically, not, not academically. We really can sense how it's happening when we take the time to pay attention. You know, what is a thought? These thoughts arise in the mind. What are they? It's the, it's the most elusive phenomena. And yet it is the one that so completely dominates our lives. And just the paradox of that, because when we see them for what they are, we see they're nothing. They're just, <laughs> they're just this ephemeral, ephemeral, ephemeral nothings. <laughs> and when we don't see them, they create a Yugoslavia, or wars, or, or interpersonal dramas, or whatever. This is a chance to see, to see for ourselves, okay, what is the nature? What is a thought? What is this phenomenon? What is an emotion? What is the nature of the mind itself? What is it that knows? This is what our practice is all about. This is what we awaken to. 
And not least of all, just as we relax and settle back in this willingness to experience what's happening, we get a very clear sense of ourselves as a package of qualities. Now, we're all... <laughs> there are beautiful things and there are really terrible things and pleasant and unpleasant, and it's just this package. And as we settle back and as we get more accepting, we develop a certain humor about ourselves. You know, we stop taking it all so seriously. We become accepting of the package of what's there because we see that it's all empty phenomena just rolling on. Sense of humor is really helpful. This is what we're doing. You know, meditation is really the practice of the art of freedom. And all of it can be done, all of our efforts can be made with this very heartfelt motivation of practicing awakening, practicing freedom for the welfare and benefit and happiness of all beings. This is what connects us all. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Remember just half a breath. May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the awakening and freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.